Today, tomorrow, and yesterday too. The flowers are dying, like all things do. Follow me close. I'm going to Bali and Ali. I'll lose my mind if you don't come with me. I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. I contain multitudes. Got a telltale heart like Mr. Poe. Got skills in the so, Bob Dylan has finally delivered on his promise to help our first guest of the day today, Ed Yon, promote his book. It's very late, but I mean, Dylan, of course, does things on his own time. That's a new Bob Dylan song, I Contain Multitudes. I Contain Multitudes, obviously, is uh, from Walt Whitman. Do I contradict myself? Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Ed Young, who's with us today, uh, covers science for The Atlantic, and he's the author of I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us in a Grander Way of Life, a book which I will say we did a show about and significantly changed my life, but perhaps in a way that I now have to somewhat revise. I'm not sure. So uh, let me just tell you what's going to happen. Um uh, what's going to happen is we're going to talk to Ed uh, about kind of the state of things. Uh, he's been covering uh, the stuff for The Atlantic uh, very comprehensively. Uh, in the second segment, we're going to talk to um, a, a cardiac specialist about something that has fascinated me. I've now read three different articles about it, which is the people are just not getting or at least not showing up at the hospital for the anything close to the usual number of heart attacks and strokes. This is true at Yale New Haven. It's true of lot in lots of places, which is weird because, you know, I mean, people should be getting heart, having heart attacks and strokes at pretty much the rate that they constantly do. So but there's there's something going on here and and we will try to figure that out. Uh, as we do. Um, and then at the end, we're going to take some phone calls from you. I haven't done that really since this started. I apologize for that, but it would, would be good to hear your voices too and uh, and talk a little bit to you. So first of all, Ed Young, welcome back to our show. Hello, thanks for having me again. Yes, great to have you. And you know, after we did the show about your book, I thought, well, I need a larger and more robust biome, so I need to be dirty more often and... <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I have to relish the fact that my dirty, disgusting dog goes out and rolls around in all kinds of matter and brings it into the house mm -hmm. and gets on my hands and stuff mm -hmm. like that, which is all still true in terms of the bacteria world. But now we're facing a different kind of enemy. Viruses don't play by the same rules, uh, and, and we're in a different place. You've written so much about this, but I, I think I wanted to begin with something that really jumped out at me in one of your most recent articles. You know, I mean, we've had lots of conversations about how there's not enough tests, about how we don't know all kinds of things. We don't know how many people have the virus, where they are, how they're getting it, uh, who they're getting it from. We have just so little knowledge about this. But one of the things that you point out is that it would be really important to know what percentage of the population has already been infected. Because if it's 20%, it's one set of things. And it's there's a way of thinking about the idea that 20% of the people in the country have already been infected with this thing. And then right. there's another way of thinking about things if it's 1% to 5% that already have it. So maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah, so um, we we have been largely um, flying blind with regards to our understanding of how 
how widespread the virus is, how many people actually have it. One way of finding out retrospectively is to do um, antibody testing. So theoretically, if you are exposed to the virus, your immune system builds antibodies that recognize and hopefully um, neutralize the virus over time, providing you with some measure of at least temporary immunity. Now, if you can measure those antibodies, you can work out how many people have been infected in the past months. And some of these um, so-called serological surveys are underway. We're starting to see some results come out. Now, if if the if the percentage of Americans who have been infected is something like, say, 20%, just to take a random number, um, that would mean that the virus is both much more transmissible but less deadly than we thought. If it's lower, if it's more like 1% to, say, 2%, which is sort of where most health experts, I think, uh, would put their bets right now, then it means that the virus is um, still transmissible, not, not quite as much as with the 20%. But, um, but deadlier. And it would also mean that fewer people in the population have any degree of immunity, which would mean that if we revert back to normal, we would probably expect much the same pattern again um, that we have already been facing, a rapid exponential rise in cases that's very difficult to control. Right. And I just want to just underscore the word hopefully that you used uh, earlier in, in what you were saying, because Although one thing we can say with some some authority is if you have symptoms and you get over your symptoms, you have some immunity. Otherwise, you'd still be sick. But but what I think no scientist is prepared to say at this point is that you have total immunity, lasting immunity, that you couldn't be reinfected in six months. I mean, or three months. I mean, I don't think we know enough to say anything about that uh, yet unless you tell me I'm wrong. Yes. No, I think that's absolutely right. We don't know what, um, how long immunity would last, how potent it would be. And I think a really crucial piece of the puzzle that people aren't really talking about is whether even people with antibodies, whether they could be, um, whether they could catch the virus and transmit it to other people without actually falling sick themselves. We already know that people can transmit the virus before they show symptoms, but could people who are you know, quote unquote, immune, could they still act as spreaders? We don't know that. And that's crucial for all these discussions about whether people who have been exposed to the virus could just sort of safely go back to work and so on. It's a big missing part of the puzzle. Right. And just so people understand, uh, I mean, there's two kinds of tests, basically, two categories of tests. One of them is what you were just describing, serological testing, which looks for antibodies, looks to see if you've had the disease, uh, if it's somehow or other present in your body or was present in your body. But if you want to know how it's spreading in real time, you really need to go back to diagnostic testing, right? If you want to know whether you should be more worried about southern Michigan or northern Illinois or where you should be directing your uh, um, efforts or where the next outbreak is going to be, you can't really rely, I don't think, on serological testing, even if we had enough of it. You really need, I would assume, diagnostic, diagnostic testing in large numbers to get that snapshot right. of what's happening. That's right. Um, and just to clarify, the serological testing doesn't tell you if you're infected right now. It's more mm -hmm. looking into, it's more useful looking into the past, like whether you have been infected before. Mm -hmm. To look at, and that's, it's not so useful for the present because it takes a while, like several days for your body to produce those antibodies. So you could be, you could have no antibodies and be infected right now. So that's why, as you say, we need diagnostic tests. And America's 
pretty abject failure to do enough diagnostic testing has really been the, at the core of the country's pr- struggles with this pandemic right from the start. Um, it meant that the country really didn't have a sense of how many people were infected, where the virus was, and that prevented a lot of existing preparedness measures in places like hospitals from really ramping up. And that's still a problem. It, it's, it's, it's astonishing to think that to this date, we still don't have an accurate number of um, the people in this country who are infected with this virus. Um, and that, that situation, um, I, I think, really gallingly, is not getting better. Uh, we are testing more people, but the pandemic has also grown, and the demand and need for that testing has also grown, and the net is stable. So we're, we're not actually getting better at the testing um, to the degree we need to, even though more tests are being done. And there are supply chain issues, which mean that testing may not be able to ramp up to the degree that's actually necessary to get a clear idea of how widespread the the pandemic is. It it may not actually be possible in the short and medium term to do the number, the amount of testing we'll need to really have a sense of security and safety. Right. So um, I think one of uh, the doctors you interviewed, I think it was Osterholm, said it's almost become a problem of physics rather than medicine. Either you have 10 million swabs right here or you don't have 10 million swabs. And if you don't have 10 million swabs, how fast can you make them? Where are the materials that exist to make those and the reagents and all all the other stuff? You know, can you get all that stuff together and, you know, to do diagnostic testing? You really have to have a bunch of things in one place or close enough to one place so that, you know, you can do the swab and you can use the reagent agent and there's usually a machine too i mean you know so you gotta have to get all that stuff together and i think ed the other thing that we startling startlingly lack at this point is a national consensus even among the people who are seriously studying this about how many tests we really do need i mean it ranges from mm-hmm. nobel prize winning economist paul romer at the you know upper end who basically says test 20 22 million people a day uh and if you do that you know, every two weeks, you'll essentially cycle through the whole population. You can really uh, isolate and contain pretty quickly. Well, we know that the tests don't exist at that level. And, you know, all the way down to, you know, considerably less anyway. I mean, the the so-called testing czar uh, of the uh, HHS Department uh, of the United States is saying, I think, 4.5 million tests per month, which is a lot lower than 22 a day. Yeah, and and I think the the question here isn't just like in an ideal world, how many tests a day do we need? Because this is clearly not an ideal world. Um, We have a global pandemic. These um, tests are not, um, while ostensibly simple, rely on equipment and and chemical ingredients that depend that. that depend on very complicated international supply chains, and the entire world now wants those same materials. So there, you know, like we like we said, there is a physical limit to how many tests one can expect, and we don't re- because those chains are very opaque. We don't actually, I think, have a, set, a handle on what like what the ceiling is going to be at any given point. So. Testing is really important. We should be pushing for as much of it as is possible, and we should not use any of this as an excuse to um, to to um, 
to get by with less testing than is optimal. But we also absolutely need a plan B for how to figure out where the virus is and how to, how to deploy the testing in the most um, efficient possible manner. And, and to me, that's about standard public health. So people who can identify people with symptoms as early as possible, trace all their contacts um, and uh, either isolate or test them too. Um, And, you know, that that work is underway. Public health departments around the country are crucially understaffed because of years and years of underfunding. And lo and behold, we have a situation that demands that, you know, they're them at their fullest capacity, and that capacity has been, um, you know, has been reduced um, for more than a decade or so. Um, but there is hope. You know, we can use some digital tools like cell phones. Um, we can train volunteers in some of the basics um, of epidemiology, like contact tracing, as um, the governor of Massachusetts is now planning to do. So there are things we can do, but crucially, those things need to be done now and with a very coordinated central federal plan. Right. And it seems to me that, and and maybe there's no way around this, but there's sort of a cart before the horse quality to the conversation we're having now. We're basically talking about how we're going to put people back in the water without having any idea of how many sharks there are in the water. So to go back to the thing that we started with, if 20% of the United States has already been infected, that means that the, the disease isn't as incredibly deadly as it possibly could be. So that tells you some stuff and might give you some indications about what kind of phasing you would do and where you would do it and stuff like that and what what kind of signs you'd be looking for. If it's 1%, 2%, or 5% of the population that's been infected, that means, because one of the things we do have available as kind of a lagging indicator is death, and before death, hospitalization. If only 1% to 5% of the population's infections have produced the kinds of scenarios that we're actually seeing now, it's a very deadly disease, and it seems to me the return to anything, the return to the workplace, the school, whatever, is a very different question. But it seems like we're having the policy debate about the phase in before we even know the answer to that basic question. Yeah, I agree. And and just to be clear, um, you know, those the difference between those two scenarios, the 1% and the 20%, is not the difference between a bad, a terrible scenario and a great scenario. It's the difference between terrible and maybe not that awful. You know, it, it's like it, the, the, the less bad scenario gives us a few more options um, and, and would lead us to expect maybe fewer pulses in the future or less intense pulses. But not, none of the people I've spoken to um, feel that even with the more optimistic scenario, say 20% is infected, that we're going to go back to a position where we're going to resume mass gatherings and have parades and 4th of July parties and like packed sports stadiums this summer. Like that, that, that world of normalcy, we should not expect that to resume on, you know, for at least to this year maybe even until we, we get a vaccine. Like we need to be psychologically prepared for that. And I think your point about, you know, putting, like making decisions before we actually have the data, this is another reason why it's smart to think about reopening the country slowly in a very methodical way so we can get that data. So you can say, for example, 
if you take off this measure, what does the virus do? If you take off this other measure, then what happens? And you can actually get information about which of these big um, um, uprooting events in our lives have actually made the biggest difference to controlling the pandemic so that the next time round, and I think everyone is pretty clear that there will be a next round, we know what best to do rather than having to just put down this massive societal hammer because we lost time and needed to take drastic action. Yeah, to me, the other conversation that is essential, and and I haven't really heard it being discussed as anything close to policy, is what are the benchmarks we would set for knowing that we had to pull back from any advance we tried to make? So we, we let mm-hmm. you know, X percent of the people back into the workplace, blah, 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 blah. How do we know? I mean, I know I know what we would watch. We would watch hospital capacity. You know, we would watch for outbreaks. Presumably we would be testing more right. and stuff like that. But it's kind of like you, you probably need some hard and fast numbers because if you wait an extra day or two past what you should have before you pull the balloon back in, and you're going to get a lot of people killed. Yeah, and, and several things to say about that. For, firstly, um, this is why public health experts are saying that we need to get those systems in place now. Like we're, we're in this bind that we're currently in where people have to stay at home and we're all facing big disruptions to our lives because we didn't have the systems in place to monitor where the virus was, the testing, the public health capacity, and we are now starting to talk about reopening the country at a point when we still don't have those systems in place, which is just absurd. Like, it will put us back in the same situation again, which is going to be really demoralizing. And you're right that we also need benchmarks, not just for reopening the country, but for thinking about whether we need to go back to this place. And crucially, if you look at some of the roadmaps that have been produced by, say, former Trump era or former Obama era officials, they include triggers for going back to where we are now if things go bad again. The official plan for the government um, that was released last week, by my reading of it, does not include those triggers. It's sort of this very rosy march towards normalcy. And there's no guarantee that we have either the systems in place to actually make that march feasible or that it's just going to be a one-way trip. I think we should prepare for, um, you know, as kind of zigzag and up and up, like a roller coaster throughout the rest of the year, where we may have to do these kinds of social distancing restrictions again. We need to steel ourselves societally and personally, psychologically for that possibility. Right. And and in the the reason that they have to be benchmarks and the reason that they have to be essentially kind of combinations of actual viewable hard numbers is it seems as though everything that should not be a political conversation these days is a political conversation mm-hmm. you know and, and we can't mm-hmm. have a political conversation about whether south dakota needs to reclose we just need a bunch of numbers which i mean if they go up on the board there isn't a, a debate about it it just happens Yeah, exactly. And that's why um, a clear, coordinated federal plan is really important. And, you know, a plan of a kind was released next last week. Um, If you actually look at the detail or the missing detail in that plan, it's essentially saying to states and to governors, 
off you go. Like you're on your own, make your own decisions. Um, it, it's not providing the kind of helpful benchmarks that you're talking about for how we could slowly think about um, reopening society and then whether we might need to ever close it down again in the future. And those benchmarks are so crucial because I think one thing that's making this pandemic really hard for people to wrap their heads around is that it has a long fuse. There are many days between people getting exposed to the virus and them starting to show symptoms. There are many more days then before they end up in the hospital and then before they might either die or recover. So it's going to take several weeks before we see the consequences of any action, whether that is the start of social distancing or the relaxation of social distancing again. It's not an immediate feedback, which is why getting better numbers and then having clear benchmarks is really important. Right. Ed, uh, I think one uh, dangerous term people use because they're not really thinking about it very carefully is the word peak. You know, we've hit a peak. It's peaked, whatever. Right. I mean, uh, right. you know, a peak would be theoretically or might theoretically, particularly if we have flattened the curve a bit, mean that the second half is ahead of us. Peak doesn't mean it's starting to be over. Mm-hmm. Peak means kind of we're right. we're in the middle of something, right? Yeah, that's right. Like, this is not a, um, you know, this is not a terrorist attack. This is not a hurricane. This is not like a, a steady ramp towards the worst thing. And then it's over and we can start rebuilding. Like you say, after the peak, there's still a long period where the disease is still here. There is still a period when people are going into hospitals, when when doctors and nurses are still struggling with the restrictions they have. And then after that, those same doctors and nurses will have to deal with the elective surgeries that had to be postponed and that need to then be done to make sure hospitals don't go bankrupt. They're going to need to deal with all the people who sat at home with heart attacks and early stroke symptoms and cancers because they were worried about going to hospitals during the pandemic period. So like after you flatten this curve, there's going to be at least like, I don't know how many other curves that are going to need to be flattened. And our healthcare, like our healthcare workers, they're not going to get to chill out um, after the peak happens. And so if we want our, our healthcare system to not collapse, we're going to need to continue this kind of action. Um, and I think that's something that people haven't quite got their heads around. Like, it, you're right. You're absolutely right. It is not about the peak. You know, one last thing. Uh, we're talking to Ed Young right now, and if you want to learn a lot about bacteria, you should absolutely read, read uh, I Contain Multitudes, his terrific book about this, and you should be absolutely following his great coverage in The Atlantic. You know, I almost hate to bring this part up because uh, so much of what's happened has given some oxygen to a whole bunch of very anti-scientific people, people who want to undermine the credibility of science, who want to question data and make it political and stuff like that. But I think we have to acknowledge that science is really good at figuring out things over a long period of time with ample opportunities to test things and to test, you know, apples against apples, but also to test apples against nothing. Uh, You know, I mean, does hydroxychloroquine work 
better than just supportive care and no drug at all? You know, but I mean, there's a million questions that science needs to answer, but science is really good at doing that over a long period of time. And instead, uh -huh. science has been asked to figure this stuff out on the fly, whether it's a drug or the pandemic itself. Helen Branswell has a terrific piece today in Stat about, you know, how there was kind uh -huh. of initial disagreement in, in the, in the, <laughs> among the smartest people who look about look at this stuff in January and February about what was about to happen because you know uh -huh. science is good at studying things a different way. You're the science writer, though. You should you should say something about this. So um, yeah, I, I think this people keep saying that I I feel like I've heard the word unprecedented um, an unprecedented number of times <laughs> in the last few months or so. And, you know, that's, it's, it's true. Um, we have not faced a crisis like this, um, in the modern world. And, um, and the speed at which it's happening and the intensity of the event means that it's difficult for people to make predictions. It, it doesn't quite gel with any of our past experiences. The virus isn't entirely like any of the viruses that, that we knew about, despite its similarities to other known coronaviruses. So uh, a lot of, you know, people are operating under um, the usual amount of uncertainty that occurs whenever any new disease arises, plus all the additional uncertainty that's generated by an event that is now affecting pretty much the entire world, and certainly in this country, almost all of us in our everyday lives. Um, so no wonder it's a difficult thing to, to wrap your head around, whether you are an expert or not. Now, that's not to say that um, as some people have suggested that the whole concept of expertise is meaningless in all of this, you know, far from it. Mm -hmm. um, people still know their stuff, and I will still um, weigh the opinions of someone who has ba a background in infectious disease epidemiology over the opinions of someone who is an, who is, who is an epidemiologist in some other discipline over the opinion of someone who is an economist, for example. But specifically, I will weigh that opinion when it comes to talking about infectious disease. If I want to, you know, a view on the economy, I'll talk to the economist. So I think we, we understand, we should understand that there's, there's a lot of different um, realms of expertise that are important in understanding what is happening right now. And with such a societal global problem, we need to sort of bring all, them, all of those to the bear um, and to sort of be paying attention to, to lots of different lines of thinking, um, but, but being very, very savvy about who is saying what and whether... Um, whether a lack of whether a lack of expertise is being um, being dangerously melded with a like gross overconfidence. <laughs> All right, that was very elegantly put uh, and eloquently put too. Ed Young covers science for the Atlantic. He's the author of "I Contain Multitudes: The Microbes Within Us and a Grander Way of Life." Thank you for coming back to our show today, sir. Thank you for having me. Stay safe. All right, we're going to take a break, and as I say, uh, I've been completely puzzled by this phenomenon, which is definitely happening, or maybe I should say not happening, which is that people are not showing up at hospitals with the normal rate of heart attacks and strokes, far below it. I mean, it's not just a little wiggle in the curve. It's a big dip. So what's that about? The dark covers me and I cannot...
All right, we're back. Uh, and as promised, we are going to explore this question that has fascinated me. And uh, I should say that when this whole thing got started, one of the first things I started talking to people about is that the virus itself, obviously, is terribly dangerous. But another danger, if an unprecedented number of people started coming into ERs and requiring hospitalization, would be to hospitals where they are all usually at 90, 95, 100, 105 percent of capacity with all the regular ills and miseries of humanity. Uh, it's hard to add this new population in. Uh, and and that has proved to, proven to be the case in many places. But this odd thing has been happening. I mean, one thing that I would wor worry about is that I would have a heart attack, and then where would I go? The hospital's full. Well, Martha Martha Gullity is to here to talk to us about this. This is the chief of uh, cardiology and physician, executive director director at Banner Health Institute at the University of Arizona Phoenix. She is the editor in chief of CardioSmart, a patient education website by the American College of Cardiology, and she's making time in what is doubtless a busy schedule for us right now. So uh, we are very grateful. Thank you for doing this, Dr. Gullity. Yes, Dr. Galati, but Galati. Uh, oh, okay. you know, it, is, it is my pleasure to oh. talk about this. Okay, so, uh, sorry about that. So, um, so let's begin here. The, there is something happening. And as I just said to Ed Young, you know, one of the problems that we're having right now is that science is much better at studying something over a period of a couple of years than it is over uh, a group of days. But over a group of days, it seems kind of anecdotally around the country and maybe even statistically at this point that that heart attacks and strokes are not turning up in hospitals at the same rate that they usually do. Is that now a fairly conclusive thing that's happening? Yeah. So, you know, it started out anecdotally because, I mean, people started asking on Twitter and other places where cardiologists share a lot of information, you know, what's going on? Is your hospital seeing a reduction in, in heart attacks? And ultimately, we were all agreeing that we're seeing lower numbers. And what quickly was done is nine of our large volume centers put their data together. And they saw compared to like a year ago, if you, if you think, you know, the numbers then, and what they were across the nation at those nine big centers um, were quite different now, a year later. And there, it, it was so significant because it was about a 40% difference. And it's not like we've, you know, there, there's nothing to explain that. We didn't find a cure to heart disease. We haven't all become, you know, started eating better and doing all the things that we know might save lives. So there's not like some sort of thing that happened. And what we are realizing is not only are people not coming to the hospital, but they're delaying. If they do need care, they're, they're sitting at home kind of debating the pros and cons between going to the hospital. Some for reasons that they don't want to be a burden. If it isn't their heart, they're thinking, well, you know, all these doctors are so busy taking care of COVID-19 patients. I don't want to be a burden. At the other point, they're like, well, I don't want to get COVID-19 by going to the hospital. And we've certainly done the public health messaging pretty well to not go to the hospital for less urgent needs. And even our clinics and such have all closed down, essentially. So as a result, I think that it's created almost another public health issue on top of the pandemic that we are really seeing a reduction in, in heart attacks and strokes 
coming to the hospital in the traditional ways. And in fact, it's more than just, I mean, I'm a cardiologist, so I can only really talk about that. But I, I read even that they're seeing the same for like other emergencies. Like if you look at acute appendicitis, we're seeing reductions in those as well. Or, and when they're coming in, they're so severe. And so that, that's, that's really our concern that patients need to know that our, one, our hospitals are safe, that we're still emergency should come through. You still should call 911 if you think you're having a heart attack or stroke and that your doctors are there for you. Emergencies are not what we want to be seeing not coming to the hospital. Those you can't treat at home and you can't treat them even by a phone call. Certainly if you have a question and you're kind of like, is this my heart or is this a stroke? We now are available by phone, by, you know, our nurses and our nurse practitioners and our physicians are all, you know, telehealth is now something that got activated pretty quickly. And if you think you don't know what the right thing to do, then call first. Call either your physician or call the emergency room and ask them what do they suggest or even call 911 and they will help you and guide you to what's the right thing to do. You know, I haven't even given out our phone number, but there's we have at least one person who ha- could maybe shed a little personal light on this who has just spontaneously called in. I think we have Charlene from uh, Lebanon, Connecticut, uh, on the line. Hi, Charlene. Hi. Uh, yeah, tell us um, about just, your situation. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to share my perspective. Um, my mom lives with us. She's lived with us for two years. She's 85. She had had a heart attack and a stroke probably about eight years ago, and she's under you know, multiple doctors care, and we're in constant contact with them. But in this situation, as a family, we had to decide with her um, at one point before she had a a mild stroke, which she's now much better from, um, and she is still in my home. Um, And we are, you know, under the doctor's care by phone, and we have had lab people come into the home. But there is an enormous concern for my family that had she been brought to the hospital, we would not be able to be by her side. And at 85, and the love and care we have for her, that's critical to her having a life, end of life situation that we can be comfortable with also. Charlene, I, I've certainly once again encountered this anecdotally and in other places. Uh, that is, uh, you know, you, we talk about the fears people might have of face-to-face medicine, uh, Dr. Galati, but also uh, people are afraid of getting cut off from their loved ones. Absolutely. That, that, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it really, you know, when in our lifetime have we not allowed family into the hospital and now to protect people, we're saying, well, you can come in and then telling the family, but do you stop here? Um, and that certainly, and especially for our aging population, but to be honest, for anyone, um, if you're going to go through something pretty dramatic, you're, you're also, you need that family support. And we're, you know, as a hospital system and everything, we're all trying, you know, we our nurses will activate their own FaceTime, call their families, use iPads, whatever we have available to try to keep our patients connected. And I totally agree. That's a huge issue. But we, it's hard for us to treat if they're not in the hospital, especially with a stroke and with a heart attack. So, you know, we, I, I totally understand that. And I'm not trying to minimize it in the least. But I do think that if 
someone's having symptoms of a heart attack or stroke, the quicker we treat them, the quicker they go home. And we do have non-COVID floors and all hospitals have tried to, you know, separate like the people with COVID are in one section and the non-COVID in another. I know that doesn't change the family situation because we just don't want to put others at risk. But the sooner we treat them, the quicker our patients will get home and back to their family. And, you know, for a heart attack, when you, for example, if you wait for a long time, you can have pretty severe damage that can lengthen your stay in the hospital to weeks versus if we treat you quickly, you can even go home potentially the next day or two days later. Um, so, you know, I, just in terms of perspective, try to think of it that way. And again, I know that's not reassurance for the person going through it, like they do want their family member, uh, family members with them. But again, it's not something that right now we know the best how to protect families, nor do we even have in many places, we don't have enough personal protective equipment, even for all the physicians and healthcare workers, let alone to add that on top of families. And maybe after the dust settles and we have time to figure out and talk about what worked, what didn't work, and maybe we'll be better prepared if this, you know, even if a second wave occurs, maybe we'll know better how we're going to deal with this. And you're right, we usually have years to learn about something. And now we've had to respond in days, literally learning about this disease, learning how to treat it and learning how to protect our patients. And there's a lot we still don't know. So yeah, this is a complicated issue for that, that very reason. So I have two behavioral questions, and the, the, these will be things that will be studied eventually for years uh, and we'll know, but I'm going to ask you to kind of ballpark them or answer them heuristically uh, right now. Uh, one of them, I sort of, I wonder if one small part of this phenomenon might be uh, increased vigilance on the part of people about taking their medications. You know, I mean, people don't want to go to the hospital ever and they don't want to have heart attacks or strokes ever. But people get a little sloppy with the lisinopril, you know, people get a little sloppy with the rosuvastatin. Did I take it? I'm not sure. Well, I'll take it tomorrow anyway, you know. And I, I think everybody's taking their baby aspirin and their statin and their, and their lisinopril really carefully right now. I'm wondering if that's maybe part of it. Well, I mean, I, I don't know because we don't have the data. Yeah. You know, we tried to put out the public health message through the American College of Cardiology pretty early about adherence to medication and why cardiologists feel you should do this and, you know, why it's important to stay healthy and to stay calm and do the lifestyle things as much as take being adherent with your medication, that it was a time to be almost more focused on your health and your prevention. And that can be part of it. I don't know that everyone's doing that because, in fact, we've been hearing a lot, at least online, that, you know, people are talking about the weight they've gained during this. And, of Mm. course, some of the food that is easy to stock up on that people were rushing out to get things and make sure they had enough food items in their house. A lot of times the things that are non-perishable often can be highly processed. So it depends what you stocked up on. I mean, if you stocked up on a lot of frozen fruits and vegetables and things that, you know, healthier foods, that's one thing. If you stocked up on unhealthy foods, you know, did all the chips in the house disappear in the first week? You know, there's things like that that we just don't know um, how they influence health. The other thing is, is that it's one thing for people with heart disease to know that they're at risk 
and know they have heart disease and be compliant with the medications that they have been, you know, prescribed and, and knowing even who to call. It's another thing if you have a new heart attack. Um, and that means, you know, somebody who doesn't know that they have heart disease or, you know, this is their first heart attack or their first stroke. I think that's much harder because they might not even recognize that the symptoms they're having are necessarily signs of a heart attack or signs of a stroke. And they won't also be on medications, most likely. Maybe they're on some things if they've already received some preventative care and they know that they're at risk, but that's not true for everyone. So it doesn't explain a 40% reduction. Mm. Oh, no, it would only be a, a tiny sliver of the part of the explanation. Yeah. Well, listen, Dr. Martha uh, Galati, you certainly have been very generous with your time today. Chief of Cardiology and Physician Executive Director at Banner Health Institute at the University of Arizona, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us today. No um, problem. And on the other side of this break, we're going to do something we haven't done for a long time, which is to take your phone calls. Uh, the number is 888 you could also tweet us at WNPR Colin, but you could always do that. But we are kind of ready to take your phone calls. 888-720-9677. Talk about it. You could just yell at me if you want to, if that would help. Salation. We're afraid to be alone. Everybody got to have a We are back. Uh, I am lucky to be working with Kat Pastor today. She's in the studio. She's there so that the rest of us can work the, work on this show remotely. Uh, the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Betsy Kaplan, and she produced this particular episode as well. And she is standing by to help get your phone calls on the air when you call 888-720-9677. 888-720-9677. Uh, if you need a prompt, uh, I can give it to you. But I also want to clearly thank uh, Katie Tularski, Tim Rasmus, and Joe Koss, uh, Gene Amatruda. There's a whole bunch of people who make this whole thing possible. So yeah, uh, we've got a, just a few minutes, not enough time really to have a long conversation, but to let you uh, indeed call in. Uh, and uh, we have a, a call or two on the board here, but it's 888-720-9677. I'm going to take this call here, and then I might even give you guys a little prompt. Uh, here's uh, Chris in Avon. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Um, Just very quickly, uh, when you were talking earlier about uh, how to kind of open up the country and, you know, seesawing back and forth and people are going to get fed up, I was thinking back to um, 9-11 and after that when they were struggling to come up with a system for, uh, you know, level of security and, you know, one could have opinions about what how well that went but it did seem like after a while at least people kind of understood you know there was kind of a movable system where you would say for new york city the level you know the threat level was at a certain level where you should be doing this and you know in pennsylvania it was a different level or connecticut and they, you know, who knows? They might look at something like that, which, you know, quite a few people have already, they're, they've already kind of been familiar with a system like that. 
So that was my small thought. I think it's more than a small thought. I, I actually, I hope somebody, you know, I hope Ned Lamont's people are listening right now because I, I think it's actually a really good idea. I mean, the more that you can take it out of the realm of something people can argue about or people will be inclined to argue about. So is 19%, you know, too low to do this? Should you have to wait till 25% or, or what, whatever? That kind of conversation is going to be unproductive. We won't have time to do it. And we won't have time for everybody to have a different opinion about it. So colors are harder to uh, to argue about. I, I kind of like that idea. I mean, behind those colors, obviously, will be hard numbers. They will be benchmarks that are uh, co comprehensively and commonly agreed upon. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think she might be onto something there. All right, here's Jack in Boston. Hi, Jack. You're on the air. Yeah, hi, Colin. Um, you may have moved on from this uh, since you you're finished your conversation with the uh, cardiologist. But um, one fear that I think animates people is not just going to the hospital. It, say you survive that part with your serious illness that, that takes you there in the first place, and then you need rehab. I'm calling from Boston, and 51% of our, oh, 1,700 COVID deaths have occurred in nursing home or long-term care settings. And I think that's not un, an unusual percentage for other states as well. Right. I mean, uh, look, one thing that I've written in my column for Hearst Newspapers, uh, but I'll say it again, we're going to have to have a national conversation, uh, particularly about nursing homes, when you know we come a little bit out of the woods from this. Uh, nursing homes, it, it's, it's unbelievably tragic and sort of weird that we have these things that everybody's essentially terrified they might have to go to someday. So if you're old, the one thing you're hoping is that your adult children never send you to one of those places or you never deteriorate so much deteriorate so much that you would have to go to one of those places. And look, there are some good nursing homes and there's some really good people working in nursing homes. But basically, they're run from, for the most part, on tight profit margins, and they're answerable to groups of stockholders who would rather see a 5% profit than a 3% profit, and that means you cut expenses, you cut the delivery of certain things, and that's just no way to care for either the elderly or, as Jack is suggesting, somebody who's uh, who's rehabbing uh, and coming out of uh, a hospital. You know, you don't want those to be deadly and dangerous places, and their inadequacies have been glaringly revealed uh, this time around. Okay, I think we only have time for one more phone call here. It's going to be uh, Michelle from Farmington. Thanks for calling. Uh, you have a similar thing to say, I think. Uh, yes, I do. My mother had a heart attack last week. Uh, she had, thank God, called me uh, two o'clock in the morning. Ambulance came. We, I drove to the hospital, you know, behind her, knowing that I probably wouldn't be able to get in. And she's 86 years old, not always with it. Um, it was very hard not being an advocate for her. Um, Hartford Hospital was amazing. Uh, they took care of her. They performed surgery right there very quickly. But not being there for her was so hard. So hard. She's home now. And now we're, you know, playing doctor. We don't know what what to do. Is she going to be get better? She had a major heart attack. So we don't necessarily know all the damage. Uh, it's a hard situation for families and so hard for the for the staff at, at the hospital. I'm so thankful for everything they did. All right. Well, good thoughts uh, to you and to your mother. Uh, I hope that this uh, continues. To, I mean, at least she survived the initial trip to the hospital system. So 
So that's really good news. All right. I dare not take another call. One thing I will say, though, is apropos of this conversation uh, that goes back to the previous segment, you know, it's good news that so many people are going for walks that they're having to shut down state parks and trails and stuff like that. That's really good news. Keep going for walks. Try to eat as well as you can. Uh, Try to uh, decrease as many of your bad habits as you can and up your good habits. And, you know, many of you are, are benefiting from not being stuck in traffic and pounding a steering wheel and having your blood pressure go up every day. So take advantage of that to quiet yourself down and stay healthy because you really don't want to have to go to the hospital. All right, Kat, let's start up the music. Uh, We'll be back with, I think we're doing a rebroadcast tomorrow. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. You greedy old wolf, I'll show you my heart, but not all of it, all of the hateful parts. I'll sell you down the river, i put a press on your head. What more can I tell ya? I sleep with life and death in the same bed. Get lost, madam. Get up off my knee. Keep your mouth away from me. I'll keep the path open, the path in my mind. I see to it that there's no love left behind. I play Beethoven sonatas, Chopin's preludes. I contain multitudes. Mm-hmm.